Good morning, brothers and sisters. Always a pleasure to be able to deliver the Word of God. The book of Habakkuk is definitely an interesting book. And we're going to be uh, looking at basically the uh, second event, as uh, Pastor Gerardo has been speaking, regarding uh, the word of the prophet. So let us go ahead and turn to our Lord in prayer. Blessed Lord, we ask you to meet us in this place, Father, at this moment, to be able to hear the word of this prophet, Lord, for it is a surprising and great thing that you did in that day, Lord. And in many ways, we are living in very surprising times. We see, Lord, that as it was in that day, much unrighteousness, Lord, is prevailing. And while it seems, Lord, like the unrighteous are winning, like they have a hold on righteousness, Lord, as they put it under their feet, we know, Lord, that the message that you have for Habakkuk was a very different one, Lord. No one knows, Lord, what you do, because as the Jewish parable, ancient Jewish parable had, to know the mind of God is to be God. None of us are you, Lord. You alone are the only one. But we praise you, Father, because you are the one who indeed has wisdom and gives us wisdom and enlightens the eyes of those who seek you, Father. So I ask you that today, Lord, you would do that, Father, that you would indeed bring clarity of your word, that this message would indeed touch our hearts, that it would bring furtherance, Lord, in knowledge of our God, and that it would bring greater glorification to you, Lord, as we begin to learn more about you and be able to be greater witnesses because you are building us up. Let us indeed be the pillars of faith, Father, that we are being established to be as the Apostle Peter taught. For we thank you for this, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be looking at Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. So I'm going to go ahead and read that aloud. Starting at verse 2. And you may stand, please, for the reading of the word. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shield. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Amen. You may go ahead and take a seat, brother. So looking at verse 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. What this is basically stating here is that the Lord is providing first and foremost an answer now to Habakkuk. As we've seen in chapter 1, Habakkuk is in great turmoil because he's seeing that the righteous are being oppressed by the, by the unrighteous, and that it seems like it's the unrighteous that are prospering and doing well. And He's actually questioning God and saying, Lord, how is this possible? The God who commands righteousness, how is he standing by and allowing for all this wickedness to happen? But the idea is that the Lord is allowing these things for his own reasons. Right? We know that one of the things that the Lord tells us very directly in Scripture is that he repays the wicked according to their deeds. 
And when you look at the nation of Israel, what were they? What were? What was being done at the time? Basically, the whole nation was being judged. Why? Because the nation as a whole was being sinful. And so a lot of times, even in our day, I guess you could say the same thing. If we are seeing great ills happening upon the earth and unrighteousness prosper, it's because the people are being unrighteous. And for those of us that are righteous, we have to take actually a cue from Habakkuk and we need to be looking to the Lord. When the day is evil, which we know that that's, this is the nature of this world, because it is called the evil age. That's what we are to do, brothers and sisters. And there are times that the Lord will bring light, and He brings uh, salvation from these things, but only to, to who? To those that are repentant, those who are humble. We learn that Habakkuk basically was, was being given the understanding that the Chaldeans at, the, at that time, which were basically the Babylonians, were going to be taking over, over uh, Israel. And he has great concern because he's seeing that obviously the Chaldeans were not a righteous people. They were actually a very aggressive, very mean and wicked people. And there is great pride within, within the kingdom. And this is obviously not alone a, uh, a sign for Babylon, but that's been the nature even today, right? When we look at the, uh, the different nations that are in power, what are they doing? What do they try to do? They try to flex their muscles, right? They work to uh, undermine each other. I think that there's a great naivety that we have today in the world where a lot of people think that because we're living in this quote-unquote global community, that somehow you know we're in some new era of peace and that we're all working towards that same uh, righteous goal. While a lot of the principles may be well-spoken, right, and perhaps the intent of many of, of those who created uh, organizations such as the United Nations, there was one time the League of Nations, which was an attempt at early on to do that. Perhaps the intent was uh, good, but we see that they, it tends to fail. There's a failure there. And why? Because of the nature of men. And because the fact of the matter is that while Christ is being preached throughout the nations, there's still much wickedness in there. And wickedness has an effect. What happens when you have a little leaven? It eventually leavens the whole lump. And that's what we're seeing. And in Habakkuk, that's what happened in that day. So Habakkuk is puzzled because being the righteous people of God, and we got to remember, this was a time before the temple was destroyed, right? So he's, these people were surprised. They're thinking, okay, we, we have the house of God. We are the people of God. We've been called to represent God. And they think, oh, God is not going to destroy his people. God is not going to destroy his house. Why would he do that? That would actually be an embarrassment in front of the nations. And isn't that logical? Right? Here you have the place that's supposed to stand as a banner to all the nations of Yahweh God. And God is going to destroy it. But yet that was God's intent. That, that was God's intent. God's intent was to show that because He is holy, His Spirit would not dwell there amongst them. And to show the nations that He judges even His people. And we know that the, he, it is because of the Lord's ordaining that the Chaldeans and the Babylonians reign. Because we know that in the book of Daniel, when you have the image of the statue made of the, of the different metals, it's basically a prophecy of the kingdoms, four kingdoms that were to come. And the first one is Babylon. So God ordained it. But yet, because God ordained it, it didn't mean that they were 
a good and righteous nation. But what we're seeing is that God will use even the wicked to do His will. And so one of the things that, uh, that I like is in uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16, we have a very interesting passage. So we have a very similar thing with Isaiah, where Isaiah was actually living at the time before these things were to occur with the Babylonians. He actually was predicting this. And he actually, he actually lived during the time of when the Assyrians actually attacked you know, the northern kingdom. Because when we're talking about the Chaldeans right now, we're talking about the southern kingdom, about the taking away of the southern kingdom. But the northern kingdom, the first, uh, the, uh, the ten tribes, there were 12 tribes, the ten tribes were in the north, they were actually given over and taken by the Assyrians. Which is an interesting situation too, because uh, you know the Lord uh, revealed these four nations, but if he would have started a little earlier, he would have uh, included Assyria, because Assyria was actually another superpower before Babylon. And I believe, actually, if you look historically, that was the first kind of world empire that first came to be was actually the Assyrian Empire. So in reality, Babylon is the second. And so here we have Isaiah speaking what the Lord said regarding what was being revealed in prophecy. It says, bind up the testimony and seal the teaching of my disciples. Now, this is very different than the message that we're seeing here in verse 2, because in verse 2, what is it saying? write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. So, in other words, in essence, this is speaking about what's called the perspicuity of the Word of God. In other words, when God wrote these things, he wasn't writing things that were really uh, not meant to be understood. They were things that were meant to be understood. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why do some understand and others don't? And that's when we begin to see that there's a spiritual element to this. And in the case of, uh, of Isaiah, God revealed to him what was going to happen. A, basically a woe that was going to happen. But he told him, this message, keep it amongst your disciples. Keep it amongst the disciples. His followers. And this is actually echoes of Mark chapter 4, verse 11. If we may read that. Which says, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Now, if you guys remember this account, Jesus was doing what? Going around teaching people his truths in parables, right? And then afterward, you know, his disciples would come and ask and he would explain it to them. So the disciples are rather puzzled and saying, well, why is it that you go and speak in parables to the people, right? But yet when it comes to us, you know, you explain this, you know? And this is the answer that Jesus gives. Because in other words... The understanding of the Word of God is actually a privilege itself. That is a privilege that God gives us. And so the understanding, so do we expect the average man out there to understand the, the, you know, the, the message of, of God? No. No. Because God has intended it for His people. And so what we're seeing here is that when He's talking about writing plainly this particular message, it's plainly for the people of God. And that's why it says, so that they who, uh, who read it, in essence, run with it. And that's what we're supposed to do. When God has given us His Word, we're supposed to study it, understand it, and go with the message that has been given. Another reason that I think is great uh, is I like what John put in 1 John 5.13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So in other words, what this is speaking to is that these things in particular, you know, the New Testament and the Gospels, the things that were written, they were written to what? To what end? 
to show us, to make manifest to us that there is life, that we have eternal life in, in the Word, you know, in, in God, in Jesus Christ. And so when these things are being written, even in the Old Testament, it's basically bringing it to them. It's bringing to the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God which saves, right, and leads us to, uh, to righteousness. Going on to verse 3, we read, For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. So here we see that God is basically giving, in essence, a warning. A warning to the people of God who are reading these things. Basically telling them, okay, when you read this, don't think it's going to happen right away. Right? Like this is going to come about, you know, right at, right at this time. But he's saying that these things actually need to be Wait, 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 waiting upon, being waited upon. And so, when we have, even in our day, a situation where we're seeing evil things happen, what are we to do? We have to wait on the Lord. We have to remember, as I had actually preached earlier on when I, when I uh, uh, was going in, in uh, was preaching on Habakkuk 1, we talked about how the Lord allows for things to, in essence, reach the full measure. And so, at times, we, we have these uh, periods of time where they seem very long to us and they may actually be long. Long times of suffering. But yet, what are we commanded to do? We are commanded to wait on the Lord. Knowing that what He says will be. Let us look at Numbers 23.19. I think this is a, a great uh, admonition towards this. It says, God is not man that He should lie or a son of man that He should change His mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So in other words, many times when we, when we look at this text, we're actually speaking about to the nature of God, right? And so we're saying, well, God cannot lie. Why? Because that is his nature. He is righteous. He's not man. As a matter of fact, this is a text that Jews love to uh, give to us, right? Jesus... Jesus is God. He's a man. How could Jesus be God if he's a man? When, you know, Numbers 23 teaches us that, you know, God is not a man. And the obvious answer to that is that, yes, Jesus was a man, but he's also divine. He's also God. So, in his divinity, he cannot lie. And his humanity is connected to his divinity. Right? Why was he a perfect lamb? Because he was righteous. He is the only man that could alone have the character of God. The rest of us have fallen short. Starting with our parents, right? With Adam and Eve. And so here we're seeing that if that is the nature of God, that God cannot lie, and that what he says is certain, then brothers and sisters, why do we doubt? Why do we doubt? Why do we sometimes doubt? Because there's an issue with our faith. And what we need to do is we need to remember that God is faithful in the things that He has given to us. As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why we read the Word of God. The Word of God is, is something that attests to this. I actually had a, a chance to, in essence, uh, give a testimony of this to my uh, older brother, because he's in the, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the process of pursuing uh, buying a home, but he's having trouble. He's been having trouble with selling his home, and uh, he was given kind of the bad news that it looks like it might not work out. 
And it's a very pivotal uh, situation for him. It's something that he needs. And he was very disappointed to hear that news. And he just, he, he, he in essence felt like giving up. He said, oh, you know, I, I think I'm just not going to own a home. And, and, you know, and, and a number of things. And I mean, I, and I understand why he felt disappointed because I, my wife and I were actually in a very similar situation. And it was, it's very, uh, uh, it's very concerning because, you know, you're, you're trying to see where you're going to go ahead in life. But long story short, you know, I, what I was uh, testing for him is I told him, look, just because things didn't come out the way you thought that they were going to come out, well, first of all, it doesn't mean that it's over, right? Because in essence, it, it hasn't all been settled yet and set, set in stone, okay, it's not going to happen. But second, you know, many times the Lord will give us things in a way that we don't think. And I'll give you guys a biblical example of that. Let's take, for instance, the account of Abraham. God calls Abraham out of the land of the war, and what did he do? He believed God, and he went to the land, right, that he told him. He gave, he gave him a promise. He told him that he was going to give him a son, and it was going to be a son from his loins, right? But what happened? After much time, right, his wife, uh, well, his wife definitely got impatient, which sometimes happens, right, with her wife. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and she, uh, she thought, well, it must be that the Lord must want us to do it. You know, and so that's when you know, obviously, he took uh, Hagar uh, as his maiden and and gave birth to Ishmael. But what do we learn from the story? That God gives breaks the bad news to him. Sorry, guys, that that's not it. And we see that God is gracious because he didn't say, "Oh no, no, you only have one child of promise." He actually blessed Ishmael. He says, "You know what? This child is going to be blessed." And and it's interesting because when you look at the account, this is something that I actually hadn't. I hadn't understood in the past until I kind of reread it, but, you know, he, he loved his son Ishmael. So Abraham was like, Lord, why, why don't you use him? Bless him. I have Ishmael. And the Lord said, no. I told you that I was going to give you a son from your loins, and it's going to happen. Right? And did the Lord do that? Did the Lord give the son? Yes, he did. He gave Isaac. And I was explaining to my brother, you see, they themselves didn't think it was going to happen, but yet it happened. It didn't happen in the way that they thought, but it happened. And there's a, a great, actually, a testimony there because when we see later on when, when the Lord uh, asks uh, Abraham to, you know, take his son and offer him as a sacrifice, you know, the uh, the the modern Jewish view is that he understood that God was not going to do that, that God would not would not allow him to kill his son. But I think there's actually a greater a greater uh, example in that because since he knew that. He had, you know, doubted. And yet God gave him his son. If God would have him kill his son, I think he believed that he would have the power to resurrect. Why? Because if he told him that it was out of him that the blessings would come, I think he understood that. Now God did have a different plan, right? Because obviously, you know, he didn't do that. But it's interesting that, you know, when, uh, when Isaac asked, you know, where, where is the lamb? And what did Abraham say? The Lord will provide the land. So we see that that's the great, te the great test of faith in Abraham, and even even to the point where you know the uh, the what's called that the Lord did provide in essence a sacrifice because there was a ram that was caught in the thicket, and that ram was the one that was actually sacrificed. And that is, of course, and it's interesting because that place was actually called uh, the Lord will provide. So I think that Abraham actually understood that the Lord was going to provide the sacrifice that was necessary. And so when it comes to the Word of God, 
such as Habakkuk, that's the thing that Habakkuk has to be learning, and the thing that we have to be learning. That when it comes to the things of God, trust in the Lord. Put it in God's hands. Trust in the Lord. He will do it. I have a, a uh, quote that I actually have from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, I haven't been reading them re uh, lately, but I, I enjoy it because these are actually uh, Jewish people that actually lived before the time of Christ. And it's interesting to me that even here in this ancient commentary, you see that they have a good admonition. It states, this means that the last days will be much longer than the prophets had said, for God's revelations are truly mysterious. If it tarries, be patient, it will surely come true and not be delayed. Right? You see, they're, they're quoting from Habakkuk. And then it says, this refers to those loyal ones, obedient to the law, whose hand will not cease from loyal service, even when the last days seem long to them. For all all the times, excuse me, for all time, all the times fixed by God will come about in due course as He ordained that He that He should buy that He should. Uh, I don't know if I wrote this. I might have written this wrong. Yeah, that He should buy His. Oh yeah, well, buy His inscrutable insight. Excuse me. Um, so in other words, I, I really like this text because it's showing that even in their day. So what happens is that they were living in a time right before the advent of, of Christ. And because it was right at the advent of Christ, one of the things that uh, I was actually sharing with Brother Kelvin, I'm sure he remembers, was that I was explaining to him that when you look at Scripture, God has everything done in His perfect time. And when He gave the prophecy in Daniel of the four kingdoms, He was He was giving time for when, in which the Messiah was coming. So one of the things that I remember as a young man that I was learning was that, you know, and, and I found it interesting even that, you know, Jesus would speak about these false Christs, and I used to think, well, how did they know? How do they know that that, they, that that you know that, that there should be a, a Christ at that time? And why is it that, that there were all these false Christs? The reason why was because they had an understanding from the Word of God that when that fourth kingdom would come about, which was the Roman Empire, which was the days that they were living in, that the Messiah would come at that time. And so here you have these uh, believers that are seeing that. So in other words, because you know the Romans lived, uh, the Romans ruled for quite a while, a couple hundred years before before uh, before Jesus came. And so, you know, so they understood, well, we know we're coming to these last days. Because we got to also remember that for the Jewish people, the last days were the days of the Messiah. So they, they believe, even today, right? Because the Jews obviously don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So they think that they're not in the last days. Because the, the last days are when the Messiah comes. But for those of us who are believers, we actually believe, at least in this church, right? Most of, many of us are amillennial. Right? And we believe that we are living in the last days. Why? Because we have an example of Peter speaking in the prophecy in, uh, in Acts 2, when he, when he gives the prophecy uh, of Joel, right? About the, about the gift of tongues and the prophesying. What does he say? In, these, in, in the last days. When was that occurring? When did that occur? In the last days. Right? We have in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, it says, you know, that the prophets spoke in many ways, you know, and at different times. But in what? In these last days, he has spoken to his son. So we know that the last days are the days of the Messiah. So they understood that these days were coming. But even then, they understood that they had to wait. And it's the same thing with us. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the judgment day in which Jesus is coming, right? And setting all things right. And the church has been waiting 2,000 years. I'm sure that, you know, 
a lot of the disciples probably thought, oh, it's, well, he's here, he's going he's to happen pretty soon. You know, but how many, how many saints have died, right? But as we have in Hebrews 11, just the way you have those saints that passed away with the hope that the Messiah would come, we ourselves, having received the Messiah, are waiting with great hope that He will come, that He is going to come, that as, as God has promised, that that day, that final day will come, and that He will come as judge. Continuing onward, if we can look at Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God set forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. And here we have a statement in Galatians basically stating, restating what I was, the point that I was making, which is that Jesus came right at the time that He was supposed to. Right? And He came in the nature that He was supposed to. Right? He was not going to come as a, as a spiritual being, you know, to come and uh, reign on earth. He actually came born of a woman. Right? Why? Because He was made in our likeness so that He could be a sacrifice. Right? That He could be, so that we could be under Him. Right? And when it says uh, born under the law, why? Because He came to who? Under His people. Right? He was born to His people as, as it was uh, prophesied uh, by the prophets. Continuing forward, let us look at uh, verse 4, which states, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now here, this is actually speaking about the unrighteous, and about the nature of the unrighteous. What is the nature of the unrighteous? How does the unrighteous live? We who live by faith, what do we live by? We're living by trusting in the Lord, right? By hoping in the Lord. The things that we are receiving, we take them to heart. And we put them into practice, believing that that is what God has commanded us, and that He will give a good reward for that as well, right? But the right, the unrighteous, you know, as Paul has said, it says in another scripture, you know, that they live for what? For their stomachs. They're living for the way the world is, right? And in many ways, they trust in themselves. And the Chaldeans, I mean, we 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 already know that the Chaldeans were had a problem with an ego because who was their leader? Nebuchadnezzar. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He was actually driven to madness because he got puffed up and he was saying, oh, look at the great things that my hand has done, right? And the Lord had to bring him down. Well, I don't know about a pig or two. It seems like more than that, right? They're driving him crazy. And uh, he actually was a laughing stock of, of the world. But to me, that's actually a, an amazing story because even though he was a laughing stock of the world, the Lord actually did restore him. He restored him and actually he said, my sanity came back, he was able to gain wisdom again, he was able to build a good reputation, and all, all of these bad things that he had been known for went away. He once again came to be known as a great king. Even to the point that, you know, when uh, Daniel was called out when, uh, when, uh, his, uh, when, his, when his grandson, I forget the name of the king, I, I, remember, I remember if it's uh, uh, Belshazzar, I think, I think is uh, the name of the king, when, when he brought out, you know, the elements of the of the temple and was using them to feast and, and do the thing and you know then you have the, the famous writing on the on the wall uh, uh, situation you know they call out Daniel and Daniel basically brings him down a peg or two and says oh you're you're basically you're in disgrace this but your 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 father speaking of, of Nebuchadnezzar says now that was a king you know and that's interesting because not only did Daniel say that but that means that since he's spoken for the Lord that means the Lord was saying that of Nebuchadnezzar. So that's another thing that we have a great lesson for ourselves, which is that, brothers, when we fall into disgrace, don't, don't be a, 
Don't give up. You know, don't distress. The Lord can correct our path. I mean, isn't that what was promised in essence through John the Baptist? Right? What was he? What did he do? He made straight the, the, the path of the Lord. When, when it says that he's making straight of the path of the Lord, it actually speaks about the people. He was bringing the people unto repentance. He was preparing the people of God that they would get right so that when Jesus would come, they would be ready to receive him. So in many ways, that's the way we have to be rulers. We should always be ready to be able to receive the things of God and to be uh, uh, persevering. And that's actually one of the things that I like about this particular quote where it speaks about that those who were following the law in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, uh, quote is that it says they are to follow it all the way to the end. So it doesn't matter how bad things seem or whether we are not perceiving that we're being blessed by the Lord because at times the Lord could be silent. Right? There was a time actually in in the Old Testament where people did not have the Word of God. And uh, one of the one of the kings that, it, that I actually personally really have a high esteem for is King Josiah. And he was a grandson, about a fourth grandson from Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah is seen very highly because of the fact that when the, uh, when, when the Assyrians actually came and wanted to take over Judea, you know, he humbled himself, he went to the Lord, he prayed to the Lord, and the city was spared. It says that the angel of the Lord slew the enemy, right? And he, and he walked away. So a lot of people see Hezekiah as being this you know, wonderful king because he, he, preserved, uh, he preserved Judea. But the thing that's interesting is that the reason I like the, the, the story of Josiah is that Josiah came into power when he was eight years old. He was a kid when he came into power. But yet it says that he had a heart for the Lord. He loved the Lord. So when he came into power, he got rid of all the idolatry, all the pagan you know, stuff that was put up. He got rid of it all. And it turns out that at that time, the temple was actually in ruin. So they had been setting money aside to, in essence, remodel the temple. And so when, when, when he came of age, it says that Josiah called the, the, the high priest and told him, you know, I want you to go to the temple and find, you know, the money that was supposed to be for the, for the remodeling of the, of the temple. And it says, and it actually tells the story that the, that the priest along with... Uh, I believe with, with other with other Levites went went to a section behind the temple, and it turns out that when they found the money, they also found the scrolls of the law. And it says that when he found it, the first thing he did is he went and he appeared before King Josiah and he showed him, "Look what I found." You know, he didn't even tell him what it was. And King Josiah started looking at the scroll, and it says that when he was reading the scroll, he realized that it was the law of God. And he realized that the way that they had been practicing it had been wrong. So it says that he actually tore, he tore his clothes in, in anger and disappointment because he saw that, you know, that they were what's called a practicing wrong. But you see how the Lord here was redeeming again the knowledge of his, of his law. And now he put it, he put it, he put it forth. They, uh, they were restoring the temple. And he actually did something very wonderful, which is when it came time to to do the, uh, on the Day of Atonement, when it came time to bring the sacrifices, it says that He made sure to provide for the people. Because what, were, what did the people have to do? The people had to provide for themselves, right? They had to buy the sacrifice and bring it to the temple. He actually provided for, provided for it. So to me, it's almost like a, a wonderful picture of Jesus, because what did Jesus do? He built a temple, right? He brought a right understanding of the law of God. And ultimately, He provided the sacrifice for us. Amen. You know? 
So it's a, a wonderful picture that, that we get in there. I'd like to read from Psalm 20, verses 8 and 9. It says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. This is a text basically explaining again the nature of the world. Why it's puffed up, because what are they trusting in? They're trusting in what they have. Right? It's just like these world leaders that, that uh, are trying to, in essence put their influence all over the world, right? And there's a particular nation, I'm not going to name it, I think you guys know it, that's trying to make sure that, uh, yeah, they have a hold on uh, every single country, you know, and uh, making their little moves, right, to, to be able to position themselves uh, as number one in the world. And so, why, what are they trusting in? They're trusting in their methods. But, because we trust in the Lord, we know that it doesn't matter what you do, right? Just like with the case of the Assyrian, when the Assyrian king came up, uh, upon Hezekiah, he was mocking him. Because he thought, oh, I'm, I got you. You know, just give up. You know, he even told him, if you do it, if you don't do it, I'm even going to do this and this and that. And yet, what was the will of God? That it would not be so. Right? Continuing forward, we have Job 13, 15, which states, Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Now here, what I'm showing here is how the hope of Job is great. And we know that his plight was great, right? He had much loss. And he was even experiencing physical physical ailments as a result of, uh, of the test that he was being put through. And yet, it says that even if God would kill him, he would hold him. But yet we see that he, he was still uh, willing to bring his uh, supplications to the Lord, right? In, in the sake of argument. And uh, the final thing that I do want to go back to, because I was actually forgetting to make that point, is that, and this is actually a very important point, is that when it speaks of of the uh, of them being puffed up, and it says, "But the righteous shall live by faith." Notice how, in this particular context, it's actually speaking about trusting in the Lord, right? That it has to do that. Unlike the world, who unlike the Chaldeans, who you know came and did as they pleased because they trusted in their chariots and their power and their army. The righteous are to trust in the Lord. Right? We are not to trust in, oh my gosh, we don't have the army to, to beat it. You know, We don't have the money to do this. If you trust in the Lord, the Lord will make it possible. And I want to make a comparison to what is in Romans 1.17, because this is quoted in Romans 1.17, right? Yeah, I didn't put it up there, but uh, in Romans 1.17, it actually says that that the uh, that faith is, is being made, that righteousness is being made manifest, from faith to faith, right? And it says that the just shall live by faith. And there it's actually speaking about how we attain righteousness, right? In in, in having in, in our faith. And so we see how the writer of the book of Romans is actually taking a particular point that is being given in Habakkuk and applying it in a different way. Because when it's, when he's writing in the book of Romans, he's speaking about how we are righteous through our faith. But in, in Habakkuk, it's actually speaking about what should be our attitude as opposed to the world, right? Which is to, to have faith in the Lord. So righteousness comes through having faith in the Lord. So for those of us who are practicing our Christianity, if I could say, that's the great attestment to to us, is the faith that we have. Why, why are we following the law of God? We know we can't keep it perfectly, right? Because we're still living in these uh, corrupt bodies, 
and still struggle with it, right? But how do we know that we, we have attained righteousness? By the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. By the work done by Jesus Christ. And so that's why it's very, very important that, we, that our trust is not in faith itself. Our trust is not in faith. Oh, I have this faith. No, it's that you actually believe in God, you believe in Jesus, and that your faith is firmly put in Him and in the work that He's done. Now here I'm going to take a, a little bit of a change because it's, we're going to get into actually the, uh, the issue of drinking. That's why I entitled I, I this sermon on prophecy and sobriety because these, the uh, verses uh, 2 through 4 have to do obviously with the nature of prophecy and how we should accept it from God and how it's basically for us. But now uh, reading in verse 5, we read, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shield. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people. Now, the Bible has a lot of bad things to say about drinking, right? Now, why would that be? I think I don't have to explain this to you guys, right? I think people, those of us who live in the world, if we ourselves have not experienced it, we've definitely seen the, the, the destructive element of wine, right? Yet we also have a, an example of the fact that actually wine is not necessarily something that was meant to be something bad, right? We know that the Jews used it in their festivals, right? It was practiced by the apostles, right? In the Last Supper, when, when, when Jesus was with them, right? And we have actually an example in... Uh, in In Ecclesiastes 9.7, we might have to skip one for, uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, where it actually, uh, where, where it actually reads, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. And so in context here, what uh, Solomon is teaching us is that there is a proper way. There is a proper way to drink drinking wine, Right? If, if it was instituted into the religious uh, system, it's because it isn't sinful, right? So those who teach that drinking wine is sinful or drinking hard drink is sinful would actually be incorrect, right? There is, there is a, a, a place for it. But what is the problem with man? The problem with man is that he abuses, right? And that's why, so if we go back now to the, uh, to the previous text, which is uh, uh, Proverbs 21, it says, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it, led astray by it, it is, it is not, well, it is not wise. Okay. So, what this is showing us here is its destructive nature, right? That there obviously is a destructive nature to wine. One thing that I can say is, I'm not one who personally has abused alcohol, but I have seen its uh, negative effects. And one of the things that I've seen in the church is that there have been, uh, uh, while we do have some people that are legalists, right? And for perhaps uh, those that are fundamentalists and, and see it in a very strict way, you know, uh, you do have others who have seen that the, the, the people that I see speak actually the, the most against it are the people that actually had engaged it. So in other words, those people that tend to be very cautious about it are people that actually experience its bad effect. And I think that that's something that we have to have a very sobering look at. Because at the end of the day, there are brothers. And through their experiences, they are speaking to us about something destructive that they themselves 
you know, experience. So, if we continue on now and look at uh, at verses at verses uh, Proverbs twenty three, verses uh, twenty nine through thirty four, it says, "Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause?" Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, your heart utter perverse things, and your heart, oh, I think I might have uh, repeated that. Yeah, and your heart, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, your heart utters perverse things, I'm sorry. Looks like I uh, did a little typo there and was uh, repeated it, or perhaps it was providential, right? <laughs> you know, but if you notice here, I mean, this is speaking of some very bad things, and I'm sure that those who have experienced this are well acquainted with uh, with these results. So the thing is that one of the things that we have to understand is that what has God called us to, and that's to be a sober people. The Bible speaks about being sober-minded. Right? So if you're engaging in, in much wine or much drink, what are you doing? You're actually going against what the Lord is telling you. Because the idea is that we have to have self-control. And being sober-minded means you have to be practicing self-control. So while, as the scripture says, all things are lawful, not all things are profitable. So when it comes on to the issue of wine, while there is a context, there is a proper context to it, I think that we do have to take the admonition of what Scripture says to its uh, very destructive nature. Particularly because in the world, we see that uh, it, it has a very bad influence. Now, in England, it is very common drink. From what I understand, uh, most people tend to go to what's called a pub, right? Which would be like a bar. In our day, but it's a, a bit of a different context because people tend to do it in a more social setting. So, so uh, there's actually Christians, there are there, you know Anglicans and you know other Christians who uh, will go to the bar and have you know what they call a pint or you know, and uh, and can uh, soberly you know uh, practice that. So in that culture, you have in essence a a sobering practice for it. But one of the things that I have noticed in our culture uh, here in America is that it's actually a very different culture. And that what happens at the bar isn't very sobering. So you will experience for many of us that are Christians to actually, you know, give an admonishment to say to avoid that. Because the intent that people have to, to go to these places, for the most part, are sinful. And in many ways, what you're doing is you're putting yourself in a compromising position. Right? So even though you yourself might be at a bar and you might not drink, what is the perception that you're giving? being in an environment that is in our culture known as having that appearance, right? The Bible speaks about not giving the appearance of evil, right? And it is speaking, you know, particularly of sin. But we have a testimony that we have to give, right? So we want to be wise in the, in, in the things that we are engaging in. If we have friends that have issues with these things, I think we need to make it very clear that if we're going to be friends with them, we got to be friends with them in a situation that's not going to put you into a compromise. And I've been in that situation. I had a, actually a very good friend of mine. He, uh, 
when I came back to the Lord, I let him know. You know, I told him, you know, um, I'm, I'm going to be going to church. I'm, you know, I'm taking my faith seriously again. And therefore, you know, I didn't drink, so I, I didn't bring up that issue. But I did, you know, we, I used to listen to world music. I kind of still do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but I'm more careful about what I, what I listen to. But, I, but because we were such lovers of music, I was basically letting them know, I am going to be following discretion in what I listen to now. So if you don't see me engaging with certain things, don't be surprised. You know, and I did it because, I'll give you an example. There are people who, for instance, most of the time I hear this. When people tend to come to the Lord and they have friends, they tend to leave their friends. Why? Because their friends are bad influence, right? And so what do you want? You want righteous living. So what do you do? You don't, you don't, you don't associate anymore with those friends. So in my situation, what I wanted was, I wanted to be a good witness. And I, I didn't want my friends, my friends to think, okay, oh, he's a holy, holy roller now and he abandoned us. So I said, okay, I'm going to stick around, but I'm going I'm to give him the terms. By which, you know, I'm going to do this. And by the grace of God, I was able to actually give a good witness because while it wasn't solely my influence, my friend had come to the Lord. And he abandoned me. And so now he, he sees things uh, the way that I do. So I see that, you know, that's, once again, if you're able to practice self-control, then you can withstand sin. You can withstand temptation. But you got to know your heart, brothers. you got to know yourself. And there are people, that, I think there's a lot of people that put themselves in situations where they're really testing themselves. Where they're putting themselves in a situation where they're basically setting themselves up to a fall. And I think that we have to be wise. Because when God is calling us to make judgments, it's not merely on saying, oh, you know, uh, do this and do that. It also has to do with how we handle situations. And what we want to have is we want to have the appearance of light. Because one of the things that Romans 14 tells us is that we need to have a conduct that's also approved by men. So that means that we have to have a conduct that's not only good within our church members, but also outside with the world. And so when we practice these things, we want to be able to practice these things in, in its proper context. If we go to, a, go to a wedding, there are Christian weddings where some people do drink, you know, that's obviously proper, you know. But if you're going to go to a birthday party where everybody's going to get happened <laughs> a little place, yeah, I don't think you want to be there, you know, much less that people, or at least don't even say you're Christian, right? <laughs> You know? So you don't, you don't want to be a, you don't want to ruin your witness. Right? And as a last point, I want to actually uh, take it from Romans fourteen seventeen, which reads, "For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit." So the things that we do, those are the things that we really want to pursue. We want to pursue peace. We want to pursue joy. We want to pursue those things that are good. And I, and I like how it says that it's not a matter of eating, eating and drinking because what are those things? Eating and drinking is of the things of this world. Are we really concerned about the things of this world? I mean, if, if you really got to have that drink, I mean, is God, you know, number one or is that drink really number one? And I think that's one of the things that we have to be able to make sober judgments on. We got to put the important things first and the compromising things, set them aside. Because at the end of the day, we are calling ourselves Christians. We bear Christ's name. So the conduct that we want to have to people, and including our brothers, because there's another aspect too, which is that in some of these things, we could have weaker brother. And if that stumbles your brother, is that a good thing to do? No. As a matter of fact, Romans 14 says, why, why are you destroying, you know, in essence, you know, the faith of your brother? 
in the state. So our testimony has a, a big part to do with how people are being spoken to by the Lord, right? Obviously the word of God is number one, but we also have our own conduct that is assigned to those things. One of the things that we see in the book of Acts is that when it speaks of the apostles, it speaks of them, you know, growing in respect, but it says not only amongst Christians, but it was amongst the Jews and amongst the Romans. The conduct of the Christians was well known. St. Augustine wrote his, his uh, famous book, uh, Confessions, and, or no, excuse me, The City of God. And in The City of God, what he argues to the Romans is because, you know, the Romans were, were actually uh, blaming the Christians for the fall of Rome. And he was saying, no, it's not because of the Christians. He says, if you look at our conduct, actually the best citizen that you have is a Christian. It's the pagan Romans. It's your ways that have brought down Rome. And that's what we have to consider in our lives. Our work is to build up. And part of that building up is giving a good testimony and being, uh, uh, being uh, diligent to, to the law of God and being able to practice self-control and to be able to deliver a good witness uh, to the peoples. So thank you, brothers. Thank you for being able to uh, receive this word uh, from Habakkuk and uh, the sober words on our Christian conduct, right, and, the, and its importance. Let us turn to the Lord. Blessed God, I ask you to help us, Father, to indeed have a good witness. To receive this word that you have given the privilege for us to receive, Father, and to be able to put it into good practice. To be able to deliver it, Father, to the people. That those that you have ordained, Father, to change their hearts, that you would bring about good change. That they wouldn't bring understanding, Father, from these things. That you would allow us to grow in the faith. For indeed, while the scriptures speak of those that are weak in the faith, Lord, we are also to grow strong. We are to be growing in the Lord. We are to grow in our understanding. We know that Paul and the writer of the book of Hebrews warns against those that are still drinking milk. We need to move forward, Lord, and be able to be settled in you, speaking of even the greater things, so that indeed we are indeed the body of Christ being built up. I thank you for my brothers. I thank you for... This, this location that we have and we're most of all grateful for our salvation and the spirit that is working within us. May you ever live, Lord, and may we ever live in you. We ask it in your question all the name. Amen.